Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for your holy word as it was just read. And now, as we seek to preach your word, we ask for your spirit to give us help to prepare our hearts to receive what you have to say to us, that we might respond with obedience and faith, that you might be glorified and we might be built up. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we are starting a new sermon series that's going to be carrying us on through the summer. We're going to be preaching through the book of James. Now, I think it's a fitting follow-up to our Proverbs series that we just finished. Proverbs, as we all know, is the go-to book of wisdom if you're in the Old Testament. Well, if you look in the New Testament, the go-to book of wisdom would be James. In many ways, it reads like Proverbs. Unlike the other New Testament letters, James doesn't have as, as clear of a structure. Uh, outlining the book has always been quite a challenge. So it's like Proverbs in the way it moves from topic to topic, and it really focuses on practical living, on taking the wisdom of Scripture and applying it to everyday experiences of life. So since our practice is to alternate our sermon series between books of the Bible in the old and then into the new, uh, we thought we might as well just maintain our emphasis on wisdom and make a smooth transition from Proverbs on into James. So I'm, I'm excited about preaching through James this summer. And I'm, I'm assuming that you're excited about it too because uh, most uh, Christians or many Christians would say that James is their f- most favorite book in the Bible. Now, I know that's not the case for all. Um, obviously, Martin Luther uh, is the one who is famously known for calling the book of James an epistle of straw because of what he goes on to write in chapter 2 about justification by faith and how it seems to contradict Paul. And, of course, we're certainly going to tackle that sticky theological issue when we get there. But I have a personal reason for why I'm excited to preach James, especially to preach today's passage. James chapter 1, verses 1 to 12, was the passage of the first sermon I ever preached. When I was 17... And I was a part of the youth group of this church. I was asked to be the student preacher at the end of year youth service. And to say the least, that was quite a trial for me. To be honest, I don't think I really considered that experience all joy. Um, I I really had never been so nervous in my life. I, I, I was standing on literally this very stage in this youth center with Messy handwritten notes that have been worked over multiple times. And I, I tried my best to preach that first sermon. And I'm, I'm so glad it was so long ago that there's no digital evidence that that actually ever occurred. But apparently, God knew what he was doing when he put me through that trial. Little did I know, standing on a stage with knees knocking, that decades, decades later, I would be back on this same stage, preaching this same word of God now to you. There was no way I could have known in that moment what God had purposed for that trial in my life. I didn't know that he was forging a preacher. Well, that's really the point of today's passage, that God does have a purpose for our trials, that he has a purpose for our pain. He has a reason for the difficult trials that he puts us through. 
We don't worship a, a distant, disengaged God, unaware of the challenges that we face. And neither do we worship a, a capricious, whimsical God who can care less about our pain. No, friends, we worship a sovereign, wise, loving God who purposely places particular trials along your path, knowing exactly what challenges that you need to face and what kind of pain you need to experience in order to become the person that he has purposed for you to be. And, of course, we are now living in a time and place where there are plenty of trials to be experienced. This pandemic that we are in has prolonged and has had devastating effects. Hundreds of thousands have died and many more have suffered physical and economic pain. And right now, our African-American neighbors, including our brothers and sisters in Christ, are going through an infuriating, frustrating trial sparked by yet another senseless, unjust killing of a black man while being detained by police officers. There's so much pain, so much anger being expressed on the streets of America. And it's because there's really nothing new about this particular trial, about the systemic mistreatment of blacks in our nation. The only thing new is the smartphone now in the hands of every bystander and the ability of videos to go viral. That's what's new, but racism is centuries old. And that's why so many feel helpless and hopeless. Will things ever change? Will this trial ever end? Well, church, I think one of the most fundamental issues that you're going to have to face if you expect to persevere in the faith is the problem of pain. If you have no answer to why God allows us to suffer, why he has us go through trials in life, if you don't know how to answer your neighbor who's in pain, then how will you withstand the day of your own trials? When the trials that God has purposed for your life arrive at your door, what will you do then? So thankfully, this morning we are looking at one of the key passages in Scripture that does speak to the topic of trials and to the problem of pain. In these verses, we see that there is an answer. But friends, to rightly understand the purpose of our trials, we need to rightly respond. Like you would expect in wisdom literature... James immediately calls his readers in chapter 1 to respond, to practically live out our faith, to respond rightly to the trials that we face. So we're going to see in our passage that if we hope to withstand the trials in our lives, then we will need first the right attitude, the right wisdom, and the right perspective. So our passage begins with the right attitude that we're going to need in order to withstand our trials. Notice with me how the letter begins with a consideration. It begins in verse 2 telling us to count something or to consider something. And the fact that we have to be commanded to make this consideration really implies that this is not our instinctive response. Our first impression would not to be to consider the occasion of a trial as a cause for rejoicing. That's not our reflexive attitude. That's why we need to be commanded to have a new attitude. So let me read verse 2 again. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So the first attitude that we need to adjust is our shock when trials do show up in our lives. We need to accept their inevitability. Notice how James says to count it all joy when you meet trials, not if you happen to meet them. It's an issue of when, not whether. You have to accept that being Christians, being those who are in God's good favor through the blood and righteousness of Christ, that in no way exempts us from the experience of trials. God never promises in Scripture to protect his people from the experience of suffering. No, he promises to persevere and to preserve us through the experience of suffering. So don't be shocked by trials. The Apostle Peter says the same thing to his readers in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. There it says, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It shouldn't be considered strange that we go through trials. Now, James doesn't tell us the exact nature of the trials that his readers were facing. Uh, We do know, according to verse 1, that he is writing a general letter to Christians who have a Jewish background. Specifically, those who were dispelled from Israel and scattered throughout the Roman Empire because of persecution that arose starting in Jerusalem. Notice how he addresses his letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So the 12 tribes uh, it hints at that he's, he's speaking to those of Jewish background And the dispersion is a reference to that scattering because of persecution. So because these Christians were displaced from their homes so abruptly by persecution, they were forced to leave behind their wealth. So their trials likely had to do with poverty. There are multiple references in this letter to poor Christians. So That's a helpful hint of what they were going through. But, you know, while it's helpful to know more details about the particular trials they were going through, the fact that James is calling us to rejoice when we meet trials of various kinds, well, that suggests that in the end, it doesn't really matter if your trial doesn't particularly match the kind of trials that the original readers had. Because no matter what you're facing, no matter what kind of trial, be it poverty or persecution, sickness, death, bereavement, or alienation due to dislocation, which, by the way, is a common experience for immigrants, no matter the kind of trial we're talking about, they are all occasions for rejoicing. That's the point. Now, joy Joy is the particular attitude that James is calling for. But note, friends, very carefully that he's not telling us to rejoice in the trial itself. Notice how he says to rejoice when you meet trials. So it's for the occasion of experiencing a trial you should rejoice, not for the trial itself. And I I think that is so important for us to stress because the trial itself could really be a horrific, evil thing. A deadly pandemic is not a source of joy in itself. Police brutality is not a cause of rejoicing in itself. 
your physical pain or your financial distress is not a blessing in itself. Friends, you can grieve these things. You can lament. You can express your sorrow to God and to God's people. When James says to count that occasion all joy, he's referring to the pure quality of that joy, not to the exclusivity of joy. It's not as if he was saying that is the only feeling that you should have. No, it is totally legitimate to feel a wide range of emotions when you are facing trials from from sadness to grief to anger. James is not suggesting that there should be no other emotional response other than joy. But he is saying that trials, any kind of trial, is an occasion for genuine, pure rejoicing. And friends, this is no lighthearted, superficial joy. No, James is talking about a deep-rooted joy that keeps you grounded and stable even when storms are raging about in your life. You see, there could be a Category 5 hurricane raging on the surface of the Atlantic, but directly underneath, two miles down in the deep, deep bottom of the ocean, Everything is calm. That's the kind of joy we're talking about. Surface level joy, well, that will easily be blown away if the storm in your life gets big enough. But a deep-rooted joy is sustained. And really, it sustains you even when a storm is raging on the surface. Now, of course, the question is, how can a Christian have that kind of deep-rooted joy when going through a trial. How does this happen? Well, friends, it's by recognizing God's purpose behind the occasion for that trial. Listen to verses 3 to 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the point here is that God's purpose in testing us with trials is intended to perfect our faith and to make us more mature in Christ. It's really a consistent theme found throughout the New Testament when it comes to the purpose of trials. These trials are a test of faith. Now, the word for test here is found in only one other place in the New Testament. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. So listen to that, starting in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what Peter is saying there is that trials are a crucible in which the genuineness of your faith is revealed. And it's analogous to refining gold. Imagine with me that you stumble across a fist-sized unrefined ore of gold and you think to yourself, oh man, I made it. I, I, I hit it rich. Well, just one moment. Wait a second. 
take it first to a goldsmith and he'll put that fist size ore of gold into a crucible and then he'll thrust it into a blazing hot furnace and then he'll let the fire do its work and the flames will test that fist sized rock to see what's really real. And after you pull it out, don't be surprised to see something much, much smaller than you first put in. The fire will have burned away the dross. Anything that is not gold would have been consumed. And that, my friends, is exactly what trials are meant to do. They test our faith in Christ by burning away all the impurities, all the dross by melting away our our sinful, selfish tendencies and, and all the remnants of unbelief still in our hearts, trials in life have a way of purifying our faith. But they don't just make our faith pure. They make our faith stronger. James says the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, that word can be translated as perseverance or fortitude or or just plain toughness. Your faith needs to be stress tested. The more your faith is tested, the stronger it gets, and the more steadfast you become. And that word for steadfast literally means to stand under. And so to have steadfastness means that you have what it takes to stand up under the great pressure of a great trial without letting it crush you. That's what it means to be steadfast. But friends, to get to that point in your life, to get to that point, verse 4 says, you need to let steadfastness have its full effect. That means you're not going to grow steadfast overnight. It doesn't happen after going through just one trial. I mean, just think about it. When you lift weights for the very first time, do you expect to wake up the very next morning with ripping biceps? No, that's, that's not how it works. We know that. Your muscles get stronger only as they face resistance over the course of time. Over time, if you let lifting weights have its full effect, well, then the results will begin to show. In the same way, your faith and your overall character gets stronger the more you go through trials and the more you face resistance. And for anyone who has ever lifted weights before, you know that you're going to feel sore after a hard workout. It's going to hurt, but it's a good hurt. You feel good about it. You're able to count it all joy because you know what it's doing for your body. It's a good thing. Well, in the same way, in this, the, the, the same thing happens when we are facing trials. It's not going to be comfortable to face a trial. It's going to hurt, but it's a good hurt. Because you know that the end result of all of that testing is a pure, stronger faith and greater maturity in Christ. That you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. In other words, the results will begin to show and you will begin to look more and more like Jesus. For that, you can rejoice. And and that's why, that's why James makes perfect sense when he tells us that you can feel good about 
meeting trials of various kinds. That, my friend, is why you can count it all joy. So the point here is that we all need to respond rightly with the right attitude, and that attitude is joy. Count it all joy. Genuinely rejoice at the occasion of meeting trials in life, which, of course, is only possible if you understand and believe God's purposes to refine you, to sanctify you, and to make you more like Christ. And remember, you've got to let steadfastness have its full effect. You have to let the trial run its course. Be patient with how long trials last and and how many you may have to face. Perfecting your faith and and completing your sanctification takes time. Like, Like trying to get into shape, there's no magic pill. There are no shortcuts. And in the same way, there's no magic pill for becoming mature in Christ. So don't try to shortcut God's means of your sanctification. Accept the fact that he uses trials and count it all joy when you meet those trials on the pathway of life. So friends, we've talked about the right attitude we need in order to withstand trials, but we also need the right wisdom. And that's what we see next in verses five to eight. That's what They're all about. Let me read to you just verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, initially, I know the connection between enduring trials and now asking God for wisdom. It may not be so obvious. Like a lot of wisdom literature, it seems disjointed. But there's actually a good reason why James would go from talking about trials to now talking about the testing of our uh, about trials and the testing of our faith to now talking about an exhortation to pray for greater wisdom. Just think about it. Whenever you are going through a season of trials, when you're going through a difficult time facing lots of trials, there's always going to be a number of voices speaking into your life, trying to help you make sense of things, trying to help you make sense of your pain. And some of those voices are going to be helpful and they're going to offer you wise counsel, but many of them will confuse you or mislead you or drive you to greater despair. And that is what happened to our friend Job in the Old Testament. Job is probably the most relevant book in the Bible when it comes to the problem of pain and to the whole topic of going through trials. Job, if you're not familiar, was a godly man who enjoyed a a beautiful large family and and great prosperity. And he was faithful and, and very grateful for all the blessings that God has shown in his life. But the devil... The devil told the Lord that, you know, Job is only faithful to you because you have blessed him. Let me take away those blessings and watch this man curse you, Lord. So God let the devil do it. He allowed Job to go through an onslaught of trials that would have broken the best of us. So the devil took away all of Job's prosperity and killed all of his kids. He left him with dust and ashes and a bitter wife who wished that he would just curse God and die. And that's just in chapters one and two. 
The remaining 40 chapters of the book introduce us to three friends who try to comfort Job and to give him counsel. They try to help Job make sense of his trials. But in the end, they offer him very little wisdom. What you begin to see as you read from chapter to chapter, you read about Job and his friends going back and forth, trying to make sense of the situation. You begin to realize that the major theme of the book of Job is not about trials and suffering. It's actually about wisdom. You might not realize it because of the narrative elements in it, but the book of Job falls under the category of Old Testament wisdom books, just like Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. Job is wisdom literature. So the driving question of the book is not, why do godly people suffer? The driving question is, who is truly wise? All the major characters in the story, they all make claims of possessing a degree of wisdom. Satan thinks he knows why people love and serve God. Job's friends think they know God and how all of God's blessings work. If you're good, you're blessed. If you're bad, you're cursed. And the converse would be true. If you're not blessed, then that means you're bad. And then Job, after going through his suffering, he now thinks, well, all of it's arbitrary. It doesn't matter in the end. The the righteous receive the same fate as the wicked, and he thinks he's exhibit A of that fact. So everyone in this book is claiming to, to have God and God's ways all figured out. Everyone thinks they're wise. But the question is, who is truly wise? Where does true wisdom come from? And then we get to Job chapter 28. And there, Job poses That very question, the question of the book. In verse 12, he asks, where shall wisdom be found? And he goes on in verse 13 to admit that it's not going to be found in the land of the living, meaning it's not going to be found among among finite creatures like us. In verse 23, he realizes, quote, God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. He knows where wisdom is to be found. And then in chapter 28, verse 28, which is arguably the key verse of the whole book, it says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. That sure sounds like wisdom literature. It sure sounds like like Proverbs that we were going through. And, you know, friends, by the end of the book, when God finally speaks, it's clear that God is the truly wise one, that he alone possesses true wisdom. And if Job is to have any chance of withstanding the immense pressure of all of his trials, that he needs true wisdom. He needs right wisdom. He needs the fear of the Lord. That's that's the connection between trials and wisdom that you find here in the book of James. You see, if we are going to have any chance of withstanding trials like Job, then we too are going to need true wisdom. And from Job's story, it's clear that having wisdom doesn't mean having all the answers. It doesn't mean fully understanding all of God's ways and and why he is putting us through these particular trials. Because in the end, Job never found out. 
He was never told why he had to go through those trials. But in the end, it didn't matter. In the end, he had found true wisdom. He had gained a fear of the Lord. That's what mattered. So when James goes on to tell us here in verse 5 to ask God for wisdom, to pray for wisdom, he's not suggesting that you just ask God to give you all the answers and and to explain exactly why he's putting you through these trials because he didn't do that for Job. What James is suggesting is that if you trust God when you pray and ask for the right kind of wisdom to withstand your trials, know that God will generously give you what you need. He will grant you that proper fear of the Lord. That's what you need. That's true wisdom. You'll gain a greater reverence for the wisdom of the truly wise one whose wisdom transcends our own. Like Job, you may never fully understand God's ways, but if you fear him, You can trust in the wisdom of his ways. You can trust that the trials that you're facing are not curses and they're not arbitrary. They are carefully crafted tests of faith that inflict purposeful pain to bring about greater growth and maturity in your life. That's God's wisdom. So pray for wisdom, ask God for wisdom. For this fear of the Lord. Ask in faith, James says. Do it without doubting. That's what he goes on to say in verses 6 to 8. I know there is more that could be said. But really the main point is that God is generous. And he is desirous to give us wisdom. But we're going to have to ask for it. Now, I know you might be wondering why. I mean, if he... Why do we have to ask? If he so badly wants to give it to us, why do we have to ask in faith? Why doesn't he just give us all the wisdom that we need? Well, it's because if he gave you wisdom apart from the context of faithful prayer, well, then you would easily grow wise in your own eyes. Faithful prayer is required so that we don't grow prideful, but instead remain humble with a proper fear of the Lord. That, my friends, is why we need to pray for wisdom. So if we are to withstand trial in life, we need the right attitude and the right wisdom. Now let's talk about the right perspective. Let me read to you verses 9 to 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. You see, what James does here is he is speaking speaking a word to both poor and rich believers. And he's trying to correct their perspectives. Both the poor and the rich have their own set of problems and they need the right perspective if they expect to endure their trials. Now, I would assume that we'd all agree that being poor is a trial. It's no easy thing. But many would then conclude that being rich must be the solution. But being rich is its own trial in itself. 
We saw that very fact a few weeks ago when we looked at Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8 to 9, where it says, Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. So in, in other words, being poor and being rich are both trials in their own unique way. Poverty tempts us to despair. While wealth tempts us towards pride. But both poverty and wealth tempt us towards greed. To be so captivated by money and and by self-reliance we end up taking matters into our own hands and trying to solve our own problems instead of going to God so being rich and accruing wealth is no solution here both poverty and riches have their own trials so the solution is to change your perspective regardless if you're poor or rich verse 9 Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. So the poor Christian should stop focusing on his lowliness and to start boasting in his exaltation. That means you are to boast in your exalted status in Christ. Remember, if you're a Christian, you are a child of God. You have been raised with Christ who is seated at the father's right hand you are a co-heir with christ all that belongs to him he shares with you that's your identity as one who is in christ focus on that and the rich christian well the rich christian should stop focusing on his privilege and to start boasting in his humiliation that means to boast in your humiliated status in christ You have to remember, no matter how rich and powerful you are, you, as a Christian, have hitched your wagon to a crucified Messiah, one who died shamefully on a cross. You sided with a despised and rejected Savior. That, my friends, is who you identify with if you are a true Christian. So the whole point is that as Christians, we should not evaluate our circumstances and to view our trials apart from our identity in Christ. No matter what kind of trial you're going through right now, ask God for the wisdom to see that trial through the perspective of one who is in perfect union with Christ. Because that's who you are. If you have placed your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, the newest Christian, the weakest Christian, the most broken, holding on by a thread Christian is still found in perfect union with Christ. I know you don't feel it. I know you don't see it. But sometimes, sometimes you have to walk by faith and not sight or by your feelings. Just as Elisha had faith, faith to see the invisible chariots of fire that surrounded him in the midst of his trial. Just as Daniel's three friends had faith to see the fourth person with them in the fiery furnace, one whose appearance was like a son of God. 
in the same way, we need the same eyes of faith to see that because of our union with Christ, He is always there surrounding us in the midst of our trials. And He is always with us in the furnace of our afflictions. And not only, friends, do we need eyes to be able to see these invisible spiritual realities, we need to ask God to grant us the new perspective to see future eternal realities. That's what James is saying here in verse 12, our last verse. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. When the trials of life get particularly tough, when you feel like throwing in the towel and just giving up, what motivates you to stay steadfast should be the promise of eternal life. That's what the crown of life is most likely referring to. Now, friends, it's important to stress that James is not motivating us to withstand our trials but by dangling in front of us the prospect of heavenly riches. When you picture a crown of life, please don't don't imagine a jewel-encrusted crown that, that kings and queens would wear. Now, James didn't use the word diadema, which is where we get the word diadem or a royal crown, because really there's only going to be one person in heaven wearing a royal crown. And spoiler alert, it's not you or me. It's not any of us. It's Jesus. So what James is talking about here is, in the Greek, a stephanos. That's referring to a garland of leaves. It's a wreath of leaves. These leafy crowns were handed out to winners at the original Olympic Games. You get one of these crowns for finishing the race. So James is saying that if you remain steadfast in your trials, if you fight the good fight, if you finish the race, then you will get a leafy crown. And sure, it's a great honor. But in the end, it's not about the crown. In the end, it's about the fact that you withstood your trials and you finished your race. And notice how the giving of that crown of life, notice how it is based on God's promise and not on your performance. So in the end, in the end, friends, take comfort in this, in knowing that no matter how difficult your trial, no matter how capable you feel right now of being able to finish the race, if you love God, he promises to personally see to it that you stay steadfast under your trials and that you cross that finish line in the end. That's God's promise to you. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to your promises. We feel so unworthy and so unable within ourselves. We thank you that you provide what we need to stand steadfast under our trials, to remain faithful to you to the end, to finish the race, and to receive the crown of life. 
thank you that it is by your grace and your grace alone that this is possible. All for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.